Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the studio on Christmas Eve. This is how dedicated Mike and I are to bring you uh, at least mediocre content. I was thinking about that yesterday, that in the parish, especially when our kids were young, this was a, I think a fun day, but a long day. Like there's kids got to be bathed and they have to get their hair done. You washed your kids? Yep. And then we'd have to get the right dresses and bows because we have three girls, you know, you have three girls too. And then, but also the prep of the one service during the year where the most could go wrong, right? Christmas Eve with the kids and so it was a stock it was, it was a full day you did like say. the children's service that yeah, yeah, oh, see, yeah. we we had them sing and stuff but yeah. i'm not a big fan of the pageant on christmas eve well i'm not bagging on it so if yeah. your church does it listener i'm not so saying it's a bad thing i what i did is i kind of would write my own and and took over the whole thing and so i was the guy up front saying dude i didn't direct the music but i directed everything else yeah and I actually kind of enjoyed it, and you can make it, you know, I mean. Uh, we, no, I don't think it's bad. Yeah, I just. We had. Lessons and carols for me was a, right. a kind of cool way to do. And we had, we were kind of the place where everybody would come to, because you're going back to the farm to go see Grandma and Grandpa. So it was yeah. a big service, and it, it was it was well done, I think. And so, but anyway, now it's like. Speaking oh, of Christmas Eve, all day, was uh, Christmas kind of a disappointing turnout for you as well? Christmas Day yeah. was always lower. We, I mean, we had not bad turnout. I give my people a lot of credit, but Christmas Eve was our by far our biggest service of the oh, year, yeah. so Christmas always seemed dwarfed by that. At Christmas Eve, then Easter, then Mother's Day was our three big services, attendance-wise. And But I remember our professor, James Tiefel, saying, kind of with some wisdom, saying, you're going to be disappointed Christmas Day. Your faithful are going to go. And... And he gave us great advice, and I took that to heart, was this is the time when your, your quote-unquote elite are there. Yeah. You know, he's like, give them a good, solid, really incarnational-laden sermon. Yeah. And you know what the problem is, though, is I don't, I don't like the Christmas Day text for Christmas Day. Oh, you're terrible. Get out, we're moving on. All right, we are here doing I, a I week. It's John 1, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it... It's all right, but it, to me, Stop it's it. not a. Stop it! This is her- this is borderline. I like her- narrative text. Nope, this is borderline heresy. I did hear, you know, who I heard preach a very good sermon on that once, hmm. in Plymouth, Michigan. Yeah. Your dad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, before you get me angry on this most holiest of days, <laughs> uh, we're gonna move on to. Uh, I like John, it. and I like John one. I just it's not. Are we in it serious on the life of Martin Luther? This is our 31st one. Yeah. You know who likes... This is my thesis is I'd rather preach on the other three Gospels you, than John. You know who likes um, John 1 Luther? for Christmas Day? Martin Luther. Oh. And that's who we're going to discuss today. He also supported bigamy. <laughs> on one occasion, <laughs> and he knew he was Just wrong. Saying. <laughs> All right. 31st episode in our Winging It series on the life of Martin Luther. Is it 31st? Luther. I thought we're past that now. I think we're 31st according to uh, the website. Maybe maybe it's 32nd. I can't remember if we have another one coming out. We got Peasant's Revolt still. Yeah. So we're in the 30s anyway. And uh, today we're going to talk uh, about someone we've met a few times already, Thomas Mincer, who is um, a student of Luther. Who, I thought I was doing the intro, by the way. Well, you then you started going off bagging on John oh, yeah, the Gospel. John's Gospel. All right. Uh, that's all student, I got to do to get you to do an intro. I got to do it more often. Student of Luther. Um, 
has a kind of interesting history, bounces around a little bit um, at different positions. He's a provost at one time. I think he's a preacher a couple different places. He has some like interim work, like yeah. one-year gigs. And is attracted to uh, Wittenberg and Luther, but but definitely more attractive to Karlstadt. Has uh, some mysticism in him, a concern for um, the peop- the 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 peasants and the low class workers and how maybe they're getting screwed by the higher classes. And he's eventually going to, would you call him a radical? Would we, would oh, we, for sure. Yeah, yeah. A radical and interesting. At you know, least his legacy is that. Yeah. yeah. And we should maybe talk about his legacy uh, uh, first is on one hand, he can be seen as a rebel. Luther is not happy with what he does. Uh, he is eventually executed for, um, uh, inciting rebellion, basically. And at the same time, even though we can look down upon him, you start getting into, uh, uh, I don't know, 1800s, 1900s, and today, there's a fresh look at him. Yeah, especially 20th century with um, the Soviet bloc, um, the Iron Curtain. Uh, In East Germany, uh, studies of Thomas Mitchell becomes very... Uh, Important, and here I just briefly throw in, um, not to interrupt you too long here, Mike, but um, this, uh, um, as far as what he studied for, when I mentioned radical before, he's going to be studied through the lens of communism. Yeah. So that's why, especially, I would say his legacy at least. Yeah, is radical. and so you could see that some people would say this guy's standing up for what is right. He's not sitting cloistered away teaching and stuff. He actually wants to do something. And of course, um, you know, if you if you are in the Eastern Bloc, if you're in East Germany, or if you're, you know, even Soviet in Soviet Russia, you're looking for heroes from the medieval time and from maybe even the Reformation time. Um, That's it's part of propaganda, right? right? And and Munzer can fit the bill as a a hero of the proletariat. Yeah, yeah. So excellent. All right. So Um, um, just one one thing with that too. And I was trying to pull it up on my computer, but I wasn't getting to it fast enough. But um, if you're listening to this one and you haven't listened to a previous one, uh, a good winging it session to go back to and listen to after this would be the one that we did on the um, the Zwickau prophets, because there's going to be some crossover between Mincer um, and the uh, the Zwickau prophets. And this is bad, Mike. I don't even know how to navigate our own. Oh, there we go. <laughs> And then our our episode that's going to come out before this on the peasants' revolt is right. would give you some. And that should be coming too. out within the week um, of either Christmas Day or or the week after. Um, so that that episode will yet to be out. So the peasants' revolt will be important. And then um, I just want to find here. Why am I? Oh, there's Big Out Prophets is winging it, um, part twenty six. Um, and so a lot of those themes that we talked about in those will come up again here with Mincer. Especially we mentioned um, East Germany or the GDR or the DDR, um, the Deutsche Democratic Republic. Um, is you know, A lot of the scholarship is going to be through that lens. So if someone were to go into a JSTOR, um, you know, journal article database and search for Thomas Munzer, you're going to notice the dates, um, the names, a lot of it aligns, the, the universities aligns a lot with um, with East Germany. Yeah, and, and when it comes to the actual bio graphical information we have it's it's actually 
pretty sparse. Right. Right. And so you can read a lot into, you know, you, you got to fill in some gaps. And, and the so, danger with it too is you're, you're a lot of what you will read about Minso, you're reading about him from his opponents. Mm -hmm. So it's like a lot of phases of history where um, you have to ask yourself, uh, and this is going to be true. We're recording after this on, on Katie Luther. This is true to an extent on Katie Luther too. Um, a lot of the biographical data is given by opponents, um, mm -hmm. in that case, opponents of Luther. And so you have to be um, cautious with it. Yeah. So we're thinking just some what we think biographical, uh, Ali, about, about him. Uh, born probably around 1489, we think, 1489. Um, he uh, studies in Leipzig, I believe, through 1506. Um, he's eventually going to get to uh, Wittenberg. He's going to study there. Uh, throughout this, though, uh, he is going to... Uh, there's going to be those who influence him from a German mysticism kind of point of view. And that's going to be the big turning point for him. Yeah. It's going to be with mysticism. And um, remind me, we should get back later to Glasenheit. Okay. Well, do you want to do that right now? Um, yeah, especially with mysticism, a concept that will become <clears throat> um, important for... Uh, for Minster. And this is interesting because Luther early on is going to be influenced by um, mysticism as well, and you're going to see a turn from that. Um, I'm drawing a blank, Mike. Do you remember the the German something, the book that Luther is very much influenced by that was a... Um, like Towler's? Yeah, uh, it's... Uh, what's the name of that? Um, I can Google it later, but, um, but you can see in phases with Luther where he's... Um, influenced by these things, an emphasis too on surrender, um, and this is a, a thing that will um, be throughout Luther's life. For instance, with the the use of verlassen, that you surrender or abandon oneself, although that comes to take a passive meaning in Luther's theology as he gets more and more grounded in God's grace. Um, but for mysticism, an important thing would be this concept of self surrender, right? If you're going to be ready to um, receive revelation from God, or you're going to be ready um, for God to work through you, well, you have to give yourself up, you have to surrender yourself. Uh, you see this as an emphasis in, in mystical-type um, theology still today. But um, Mincer's going to take this very far, where it becomes like radical self-surrender, this Galassenheit. Um, and he sees this as a break with the world. Right, so this is going to be you're going to have a break with the world and all that comes with the world. So earthly ranks and exploitation of people, um, service in in what are considered uh, to be earthly or worldly or, or carnal um, roles. Um, you're going to have an emphasis on the godly and the godless, and not the godly or the godless necessarily along the lines strictly of faith. Um, but you're going to hear Mincer talk about it in ways of. Um, he wants, he thinks the godless have to be destroyed, right? Um, but this Galassenheit, this self-surrender, this break with the world, which interestingly leads to this desire to recreate the world, mm -hmm. right? To revolution, um, will be central to his thought. Um, uh, Luther will have never the revolutionary aspect at all. Um, he'll have a bit of an emphasis on surrender that you'll see earlier. But Mincer really takes this a long way. So this this concept of glass and height will be central for him. And it's what leads both to his break with the world, but also to his conviction that there's going to be this kind of new Jerusalem, this new um, world order type, uh, you know, Christ coming and uh, this leveling of, of things. Um, and this is why communism 
uh, or communist uh, nations um, and their historians had interest in Minster because this was a very proletariat-ish type mm-hmm. thing. Um, just a little bit of Marxist language here for you. The proletariat would be what we would consider the working class. <clears throat> the bourgeoisie would be the middle class. Um, Mincer, if he were going to use Marxist terms, would have said that Luther was, um, uh, as later Marxist scholars would say, solidifying bourgeois values <clears throat> and the bourgeois order of things. Um, Mincer is going to align with the peasants, with the proletariat, and that's what will be attractive in the in the GDR or the DDR um, regarding uh Mincer. But the, it's this it's this idea of surrender and break. Yeah, and I wanted you to do that right away because that seems to be maybe uh, early on in his life he is already thinking about this. Um, and when he gets to, to Wittenberg, uh, you have the indulgent uh, controversy. This is right up his alley, right? And uh, some think that maybe he even was in attendance at... Uh, in the Leipzig debate with Karl Stott and Eck and, and Luther. Uh, don't know that for sure, but um, he eventually goes to a couple different places. We don't think we need to detail all of his, his uh, resume there. But he does get sent to Zwickau, right, to be an uh, um, um, interim pastor. Is that right? He's kind of filling in for... for yep, uh, and there uh, we don't like know the, if the Zwickau prophets influence him or he influences right. the Zwickau prophets. Right, but definitely there's something in the air right there. And he eventually gets kicked out of Zwickau, right? Yep, that and first time. briefly just throw that work that I was talking about with Luther is uh, Theologia Germanica, Germanica or the German theology. Yep, sure. um, but Tauler uh, and others are German mystics, as Mike mentioned, who yeah. would, would have an influence. But that was the work I was trying to think of. Yep. Um, he eventually gets to uh, Prague and he has this Prague manifesto, which I had not heard about. And so do you have any insight on that? But just that um, the next step that there's going to be now let's do something. This is going to be the final phase in Christendom. Like right. We, we're going to now have it here on earth. And he's going to do this in a f- several of the places he gets to where he's going to gather around him. Um, and there will be different terms for it, the elect or the, or the godly. Um, the, the big one, um, let me see if I can find in my notes. I can come back to it. Um, he's going to have... A, well, let me interject while you're looking Go that ahead, up. Yeah. Um, I was, this comes from somebody else, but uh, more and more I think about, we think about problems with the state and religion, whether it be Islamic radicalism or whatever you want to call it, whether you talk about uh, um, uh, uh, Christians using Christianity in war. Uh, the easy way to say is you have these fundamentalist people who actually believe in this stuff, and that's the problem why we have religious strife. But that's not really the issue. The issue is a very fine theological point, and it has to do with its uh, apocalyptic uh, understanding. It's a, Call it millennialism, call it whatever, Christian utopia, um, um, this kind of we are going to bring about Right. An earthly kingdom, and it's true of every single religion, and it's that very particularly theological um, impetus. And it's not fundamentalism or radicalism, you know, fundamentalism right. as in uh, we, we actually believe this, the fundamentals of our religion. It's that, and it always ends up in bloodshed. And it, I mean, this is something, and I think this is a good point. Um, a good example in Islam and well would be... Um, if you remember back with Iran when Ahmadinejad was, um, I believe they call it president, not prime minister or anything, but um, um, of Iran, the, 
yeah, the, uh, the is it the twelfth Imam or there's there's so, some yeah. belief of this. Um, there's a millennial type uh, belief, and having an apocalyptic view is not always synonymous with what we might call a millennial view. And millennial might not be the best term here because Mincer's not like pre pre millennial, post millennial mm-hmm. in the or pre trip, post trip in mm-hmm. the like twentieth century, nineteenth century. This like is one example American, of apocalyptic. Right. Yeah. But um, but he's apocalyptic in a way that Luther isn't. Luther is extremely apocalyptic, mm-hmm. right? And Luther sees conversion as apocalyptic, even right. Eschatology it applies even to conversion. It's the end of your old man, and right, you're put to death. Um, now the old man still clings, but you're put to death and raised. Um, but it's it, it's an apocalypticism, which we are to bring about. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the, the and I- we see this in the American setting. Um, and this is an interesting parallel I was thinking about when I was thinking of Mincer. If you think to the 90s, um, you had kind of this neo-monasticism in Christianity of, you know, like Christian yellow pages for mm-hmm. so you could find a Christian plumber. Um, Christian music as a, a growing emphasis on I just listen to Christian music or I um, wear Christian clothes. or I. Yet at the same time, those same people that wanted to withdraw in those ways politically— were very involved in trying to bring about a more godly America. And this is not um, by any means a one-to-one equation with mm-hmm. Mincer, but it is to say sometimes that desire to withdraw from the world can also um, align with a desire to remake the world. Um, now, Mincer would say this is God's going to do this, but he definitely believes God's going to do this through him yeah and and the all of those different nuances what do you mean by apocalyptic what do you mean by eschatology what do you mean millennialism all that? the problem comes with the idea that god's waiting for us to do right. something and luther does not hold to that yeah. luther would say god's going to do it in his good time but we best be ready right. instead of, yeah instead of uh, which would very be very uh, new testamenty is wait rather than God is waiting for us to convert the Jewish people. God is waiting for right. us to turn uh, to to fight jihad. Mincer would not have been good at Advent. Yeah, <laughs> and <laughs> and this is true, by the way, of every religion, even the ones that we kind of paint over as um, peaceful—Hinduism, Buddhism, and stuff like that. And so, it's kind of an interesting. There's always thing. a strain. Yeah. There's always something in there that thinks that God, the divine, whatever, is twiddling his, her, its thumbs waiting for this thing to happen down here. And it was in Judaism when Jesus yep, came. Yep, absolutely. So anyway, the Prague Manifesto um, is is part of his development. Just to clarify, I would say. I'm not sure. saying Jesus was, like, but the, the zealots and others, absolutely. Right? you had this the same impulse present. And, and in our confessions, it's kind of weird to, to hear about that, but they will talk about uh, in the Lutheran confessions, this Jewish millennial kind of yeah, Im- and they label it that yeah. way, yeah. And and that's what do you mean? You know, what what do you mean by that? Because from our context, we see that maybe more as a, you know, some very weird Baptist preacher who's uh-huh. like, here's you know, twenty twenty is going to be the the day when the millennium. Begins. I just didn't want someone writing it upset that I thinking I was saying Jesus was a millennial. <laughs> uh, he is, but he's an a millennial. I just don't want him to be a millennial because then he would probably, you know, be kind of lazy and 
too much into craft beers to die for our sins. I'm just joking. I like millennials. I, I love the okay boomer thing. That was just a joke. So. For, for the record, you and I did not like boomers before it was popular to dislike boomers. Well, that's right? where yeah. that's where Gen X gets ripped off. Is um, we've been complaining about boomers <laughs> before, way before everyone else. Yeah, we just didn't know how to. Because the boomers were really cramming it down our. Yeah, there's like boomer youth ministry of we're like oh we got to do this for the youth and what they really meant is we just want to sing the mamas and the papas but make it a little Jesus-y yeah well we were and we're like we don't we don't like this but we had to put up with it yeah because we didn't know we were we were younger and impressionable and these were our parents and they were telling us that we're supposed to like that yeah but then you get older and you're like I don't know like I've been listening to some music and that really pretty much sounds like Jefferson Airplane right and it's not really that good Right. You know, I wonder if there was like a secret ecumenical council of boomers seventy one of the church, nineteen seventy one, oh. and, and the agenda was this. How can we make the Christian message be as corny as possible? Yeah. You know what I think um I got some ideas. I think for the most part now, you might be more of a fan of Vatican II than I am. Uh I'm not and I, I can say even Catholic Johnstons were not fans of like Grandma Johnson was not a fan of Vatican II. Well, Vatican II was but, was uh, also it was in the air. Like how right. you know? Obvious. But you know what? You know what? Vatican II needed just it needed one, like one like of my son Nicholas there. And you know what they needed him to go up to the mic and say, <laughs> "Okay, boomer." Okay, boomer. Like and that would have, that would have healed a lot of stuff. Vatican II did Vatican One and Vatican Two some clearly nice things. The only good stuff Vatican II did though it ripped off from Luther. Don't say freestanding altar. No, uh, well, I don't like that, but yeah. it did. They did rip it up, yeah. but like the vernacular and the vernacular, all those things. <laughs> right. Uh, you don't like the freestanding altar either. I'm not a huge fan. Did we talk about this before? This we should do this. We we a, have we have talked about this well before either of us were in positions where. But we I mean, the, on the podcast. No, we haven't. I don't. That think would so. be a good talk without offending people, but yeah, well, I'm not I a huge fan of it either. I'm not either. Um, I mean, it is what it is, right? You know, that's when they made the advent blue too. Mm-hmm. You like the blue or no? I like the blue because I like the color and I like right. the I like it aesthetically. Aesthetically, but I, you know, it's like, it's a Marian color. And I think it caused it. I think purple helped reinforce what is easily lost in Advent, that it is a penitential yeah. Se- season. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's for a different time. So, but it, it's, can I make the transition I got here? Sure. What was one of the things that Mincer did that Luther did really like that was an important contribution? A German mass. This is true. And before Luther wrote his. Right. By he, a couple he years. He did it really well, Luther thought, at least at first. Um, put it, uh, it's interesting. Like 1523. You, yeah, and he puts it, um, this is a mark that shows at this point he's not completely off the reservation when it comes to uh, what the divine service should look like. And so um, we talk about these liturgical things, but um, Mincer actually does make an important mm-hmm. contribution in that mm-hmm. way. So back to his his life a little bit. Um, he does that was the next thing we were going to talk about. Uh, German evangelical mass, uh, fifteen twenty three. Um, he starts to get violent though, and that's when I think he becomes uh, persona non grata, you know, uh, among Luther um, and, and the Wittenbergers a little bit. Um, well, he and there's an interesting story with that. Of he at first thinks the. Um, Saxon princes are going to get rid of the godless. Like he's, he thinks now is going to be 
We're getting ready for Christ's coming. The Saxon princes are going to be the ones to get rid of the godless. And by godless, he doesn't just mean the Roman Catholics. He means the people who aren't reforming enough mm-hmm. either. So even some of the Protestants. Um, he has um, his congregation. Is it, At that point, is he in Allstadt? Allstadt. Okay. So he is, the, he is a pastor, and this is an electoral Saxony. And they're getting a little riotous. Yeah. Like, I mean, they, they mess up a, a monastery, a convent, don't yep, they? Yep, um, And so the... Um, but he's very popular. People from around are vi- coming to Alstadt to listen to him preach. Yeah, and is it is it John, which I think it's Elector John, who says, "Okay, I'll." Co- yep, uh, Duke John um, says, "Okay, I'll come hear you preach." Mm, yep, who yep, will yep. become Elector John? Um, and this is Frederick's his, brother. This is his prince's sermon. Yeah, and he, uh, you would think he'd be like a. Okay, I'm gonna pull some punches. The prince is here. He mm-hmm. might get a little upset at this, and he uh, he doesn't. And so John is like, uh, "Okay, I've tried to give this dude a, b- a bunch of shots." And I wonder, Luther's been warning me that this is gonna lead to violence, and that becomes kind of the point where the the, the Saxon court's gonna say, yeah. "We gotta we gotta watch this guy." And I don't know if this was a. I'm guessing it was not a signed text, but he happens to preach on the second cha- chapter of Daniel. <laughs> right, and he's like, and he, and it, the sermon is about we've got to kill the godless. Yeah, and so maybe just theologically, we should we should say that there is. Munster seems to be very clear about what he believes yep. when it comes to justification, and that he has different than the Wittenbergs. It's not right. like, oh, this guy's just radical, but he's a d- good dude and, theologically. And he, like Karlstadt and many of the radical reformers, now he's Karlstadt's not violent like Munster, and, and we have talked about Luther unfairly lumps Karlstadt in with Munster, but like Karlstadt, Munster's really into the Old Testament. And not into the Old Testament because Christ is there, as Luther is into the Old Testament. Um, but in the Old Testament, like, we need kings like these kings who are, you know, cutting people down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I believe before his execution, he actually asked the princes, before they execute him, he's like, read the Old Testament, read about the kings. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's he he's basically telling, like, Duke John, like, you got to be like the Old Testament kings and slay you some godless. And he dies in 1525, so he's a young man. I mean, this is right. very short, and he's still full of, full of a lot of passion there. I mean, just to to read from this biographical sketch here, you know what what Mincer thought: God does not accept the sinner, but rather the one who becomes conformed to Christ through inner and outer suffering. Right. So you see some mysticism there. Um, you see there's going to be some activity there on the Christians' point of view. And it seems that Wittenberg is saying we don't agree on the basis of justification here. At least at some level, there is going to be a, a theological split there. And then he's going to carry this out, and he is going to be, even though the we can we can now put off our our pastoral theology glasses and put on the glasses of helping your neighbor. He was at least willing to stand up. And, and it seems in very, not just in a, a broad way, but this particular industry. In concrete way. I think the weavers. Yeah, the weavers to... are, this. they're getting screwed. And so I, I took the time to think about their plight and what the secular authorities need to do to fix this economic, whatever it be, be injustice or, or whatever. And so... When we put on the lens of neighbor, we can at least appreciate that he was willing to stand up. 
His methods, of course, are to bring about a Christian utopia, maybe he didn't use those words, but to get rid of the ungodly, usher in a new phase of Christianity, which is therefore going to be just and pure, and uh, you know, the, everybody's going to be equal. And so you can see how, yeah, that's great, however, your theology messes things up, and you can also see how, um, well, a, a left-leaning socialist, communist, Marxist may say, this guy was saying some good things very, very early on. Right. So I got a question for you. Um, I wrote a note down when I was reading some of this is, um, Mincer is very polemical. Um, he does not pull punches. Um, and he is very hyperbolic. Like, you know, these, these people should be you know ripped apart by dogs or something like that. And when we read Luther, we hear some of the same hyperbole. So what is the difference between the polemic nature of Luther's preaching and that of Mincer's, if you had to give a I would a short say that the biggest difference would be violence. Luther's language is, is not violent. It is sometimes profane, although not profane for its day. Um, he's not, when he makes a hyperbolic statement, he's not saying, I really want you to go do this. Well, and Luther seldom uses... Um, violent imagery when it comes to calling upon people to act. He may use violent imagery when it comes to the, the Satan fighting Christ or um, the battle for the sinner. Um, but you can, I mean, you can see why Luther would quickly recognize the problem because Luther's very uncomfortable ever with telling even princes to take up the sword except we get the admonishment if you listen to the previous session on the, the Peasants' Revolt. Which is uh, the same time period, yeah. Right. Mincer's um, imagery is violent in that he's calling people to violence. Um, that's something that, um, as a conservative reformer, as Krauth calls Luther's mm -hmm. uh, in his work, uh, is is not something that we'll see. Um, so Luther, Luther could be puts, hyperbolic, but he, he does not yeah. use violently. And I think probably underneath, you know, first of all, Mincer actually puts his money where his mouth is and, and participates in some of this stuff like oh, yeah. Wingley did. Luther, Luther's not, you know, he's not going to participate in these kind of violent things, which you can then see he's more bourgeoisie and, or, or in a, in, in a, in a uh, way that uh, somebody from the, 20th century might look back upon but in, perhaps in, in Minster's sermon just a, a, a you mentioned this sermon already Mike but the um, the sermon uh, sermon before the princes by Thomas Mincer, an exposition of the second chapter of Daniel all July 13th 1524 I actually have my students read that in history of the reformations um, that's a good one it's available you can get a PDF online otherwise if you can't find one let me know and I'm happy to share it but um, you'll see in there both um, an emphasis on um, direct revelation in a way that obviously Luther would have been uncomfortable with, and then the call to violence. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's a very good, um, if you want to dip your toes in the water and get a sense from Mincer, it's a very good place to start. And probably undergirding yeah. all of this is um, faith for Luther. It's going to be on God's time. This is what we're called to do. We're called to believe and confess. We're not called to... <laughs> go outside of our vocations and take godly matters into our hands, right? So, and, and you eventually you start to see Luther's ethic and vocation where he says, um, it's always wrong to kill, except if you're an executioner, then you have to kill. 
but it's God doing the killing through you. And so if you take yourself outside of that bonds, outside of that role, outside of that calling, then you are, then you're just flat out just killing. Even if you have the most righteous of, of, um, uh, impulses, you are outside of this, this order. And that is based on you trust God. Right. And so for instance, in his, uh, sermon before the princess, he has, um, he'll have a section about law and gospel. Um, but the gospel that he'll talk about, um, becomes a wholesome plaster for our souls, which he wanted to make righteous and well again. Now these, he's going to build off that. Um, and he says here, one can now take uh, hold with both hands of how Christ, um, well, now it's flipped, uh, how Christ made, uh, the fall of Adam for us no longer damaging or damning. Um, and here, what Luther and Mincer both see people cleansed for action. Luther sees people cleansed for proof, vocation. Mincer sees people cleansed for what something we might almost call avocational. Um, these are works they're going to take upon themselves, right, that they feel an inner call to carry out. Um, Luther's always very skeptical of an inner call. Luther is going to say, okay, you've been cleansed by Christ. Guess what? You're still a plumber, but now you can be a plumber for the benefit of your neighbor and knowing that God is using you for it. Mm-hmm. Mincer is going to say, you've been cleansed by Christ. Now stand up and do right this revolutionary work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know if we have any much. We're, we're kind of at, at 33 minutes right now. I, I kind of thought this was going to be a short one because we mentioned him a couple times already, but he's he is an important person. Uh, from just the Reformation point of view and kind of a nice little uh, tidbit into what does the 1520s look like from Luther's point of view, what's going on, but also just from our point of view as, you know, for me anyway, being a wannabe historian, Luther historian, uh, to see how people throughout the ages look at a person like this and then to say, watch myself when I read biographies of Luther. Um, am I writing, am I reading a biography of Martin Luther, uh, from a German point of view that wants to make him this great patriotic hero? Am I looking at at a biography that says wants to make Luther, uh, the, um, the whipping boy for all that is wrong in modernity, you know, all those kinds of things. (laughs) So, uh, it's just a helpful from a historical point of view to, get into some primary source stuff and maybe somewhat of obscure, although not too obscure character during this little window of the peasants war, the reformation is kind of getting, has to kind of grow up very quickly and find its footing and find its administration. A lot of things happen here. Luther is going to get married the year that uh, Mincer dies. There's a lot going on there and it's good for us to take a break and say, what is, what is this person this non-Martin Luther person, think about what's going on in this window in the life of Martin Luther. And I think just two things that come to mind as we close for me would be, first, Munzer helps explain um, some of Luther's very um, real fear of instability um, or attacks upon the social order in the name of the gospel. Um, So very early on in Luther's Reformation, we see this personified um, in a lesser extent in Karlstadt, but then in Minster. And so when people read Luther and they go, why isn't he trying to change this and that? Um, because he's, he sees where some of these things have led. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, 
Um, sometimes people say, why is Luther so harsh against people who disagree with him theologically? Um, this also instills very early in Luther the danger of people claiming the mantle of the Reformation or of the Scriptures um, and perpetrating violence in God's name. Um, and so when people say, why is he so polemic or why does he get so worked up if people disagree with him? Well, this is part of why, because um, we may read this and go, Mincer did this and taught that. Well, guess who Luther's opponents are going to blame for, for Mincer having these positions? Mm-hmm. And guess whose positions they're going to say they are? Um, so this also explains um, Luther's growing polemic for those who will disagree with him the- theologically but claim to be within kind of the Reformation Big Ten. So we uh, appreciate you listening. Hopefully we didn't ramble on too much. We're going to continue our walk through Luther. We're in the 30s of our episodes. I don't know when we're going to stop. Your guess is as good as mine, but we're enjoying this, and we hope that you are too. So please come back and listen um, and go back, if you haven't already, to to the beginning. And uh, we started with his birth, and, and you can find out hopefully quite a bit of information you didn't know about uh, the life and thought of Martin Luther. Until then, go live free, friends. Another round, another round, one more round, won't get me down.